You are listening to Primary Care Perspectives, a podcast where pediatric experts from Children's Hospital of Philadelphia and other guests discuss primary care issues that are on their minds and the hot topics that all pediatricians see affecting their daily practice. This podcast is for general informational and educational purposes only and is not to be considered as medical advice for any particular patient. Clinicians must rely on their own informed clinical judgment in making recommendations to their patients. Hi, I'm Dr. Katie Lockwood, a primary care pediatrician at Children's Hospital of Philadelphia, and today I'm talking about acute head injury. While head injuries occur year-round, we often see them more when the weather is warm as kids are playing sports, riding bikes, jumping on trampolines, driving cars, and other things. Here to help sort through the management of acute head injuries in the primary care setting and delineating when to refer to the emergency department is Dr. Daniel Corwin, an assistant professor of pediatrics and associate director of research in the Division of Emergency Medicine at Children's Hospital of Philadelphia. So welcome, Dr. Corwin. Thank you so much for having me. Well, it's really great to have you here. Let's start, though, with some basic definitions before we get into this so that everyone knows what we're talking about. So when we use the word acute here, we mean less than 24 hours, and head injury is inclusive of any head trauma that's not abuse. In general, we're talking about injuries in previously healthy children, but we acknowledge that there are special populations, such as those with bleeding disorders or neurologic conditions and other things, where triaging head injuries will be different. So with those definitions in mind, CHOP has a clinical pathway for the evaluation and management of children with acute head trauma. One of the first steps in the pathway algorithm is to separate children under two versus children over two. So, Dr. Corin, why is this distinction important? Yes. So, the CHOP pathway for head trauma is based off a study that was published in 2009 by the Pediatric Emergency Care Applied Research Network, or PCARN. And this is a network of pediatric emergency departments across the country, 18 of the largest pediatric EDs. And it's published hundreds of papers influencing the field of pediatric emergency medicine. This is one of its seminal articles. And the goal of the study was to derive and validate a rule for children who are at very low risk of having a severe injury after head trauma that we could potentially avoid imaging them in the emergency department. So they intentionally split the group up into children less than two and children greater than two. One of the reasons is that children less than two are often preverbal. So elucidating some risk factors like a severe headache is a little bit more difficult in an infant or toddler than it is in an older child. But there are a couple of other reasons as well. One is anatomically, younger children are just different. They have larger heads compared to the rest of their bodies. So physiologically, an impact may be felt differently in the younger children. They have different injury mechanisms than older children do. So a toddler or a, an infant is unlikely to get injured playing tackle football. The last reason, and an important one, is the impact of ionizing radiation that is involved in getting a CT scan. So we know that the earlier children are exposed to the radiation of a CT scan, the more impactful it may be later down the line. So for all of those reasons, when they were deriving the decision role, they split children up into two, those less than two years old and those two years and older. Great. Thank you so much for that background. 
So a common scenario that I see in primary care is that a parent calls us after an acute head injury and wants to know if they should go to the ED or come to our office for a same-day visit. So let's walk through this type of a scenario, starting with children under two. And this age range, as you mentioned, tends to make people a little bit more nervous because they can't communicate as well with us and they have some risk factors. So going into this with some anxiety, we've got a young child who hit their head. What are the criteria that we can use to determine that there is a low risk of intracranial injury? Yeah, and so there's going to be six features that the study produced, six each for the younger children and six for the older children. And the ones for the younger children are a normal mental status and a lack of a palpable skull fracture for whomever is evaluating the child. And those two features, if they are present, place children in a higher risk category. So the risk of clinically important traumatic brain injury, which was the outcome of the study, is around four to five percent if either of those are present. And just um, as a little bit more background, rather than finding on a CT, the authors of the study used clinically important traumatic brain injury because sometimes there are CT findings that don't necessarily lead to any clinical significance. So we really want to know who after a head injury is at risk, not just for having something on their CAT scan, but having something that's clinically important. So an abnormal mental status or a palpable skull fracture if present incurs a risk of about four and a half percent. And there's four other features that make a child low risk. So not having loss of consciousness or loss of consciousness occurring and being less than five seconds, a lack of a hematoma or an isolated frontal hematoma, the patient acting normally per the parents, and then a non-sphere injury mechanism. And if all six of those features are present or absent, if you meet all six of those low-risk criteria, in the study itself, there were 1,200 patients, less than two, who met all six criteria, who received CAT scans. Zero of the 1,200 had a clinically important traumatic brain injury. And we always say there's nothing black and white in medicine. There's always a gray area, as definitive as it can get, zero out of 1,200 having a clinically important TBI. So if you meet those criteria, we can feel very reassured that it is incredibly unlikely that there is a clinically important traumatic brain injury and the risks of neuroimaging or sending a child to the ED to get a CAT scan outweigh any benefits the imaging might provide. That's great. Now, one of the criteria, though, that you mentioned is that there's a non-severe injury mechanism. And this sounds like something that could be subject to interpretation, but you do have some guidelines about how you define non-severe. So can you just walk us through what those might be for someone under two? Absolutely. Yeah. And this is where I think our pathway is really helpful. So for those who are looking in real time at the CHOP pathway for head trauma, under decision rule for very low-risk criteria, when you look at non-severe injury mechanism, there's actually a hyperlink, and that leads to a pop-up that explains each of the low-risk criteria separately for the younger children and those greater than or equal to two years of age, and specifically lists what we would consider a severe injury mechanism. And again, this is pulled right from that study of what their definition was in deriving their rule. So there are four different kinds of severe injury mechanisms here. The first for children less than two is a motor vehicle accident that led to an ejection by the patient themselves, death of any passenger in the car, or a rollover. The second is a pedestrian 
for the older kids, it's also bicyclist, but I wouldn't anticipate our younger kids being on a bicycle where they're being struck, but it's a pedestrian or bicyclist who's struck by a car while not wearing a helmet. That is severe. For the younger children, a fall of greater than three feet. This is one of the big differences between the younger and older group. The fall definition for severe is higher in the older kids. But for the younger kids, anything above three feet is a severe injury mechanism. And then the last is being struck by a high impact object. And that is a little bit subjective, but we're thinking of large object, high speed projectile, that sort of thing in terms of impacting a severe injury mechanism. Great. Thank you. It's helpful to have those concrete examples because, again, this is a a situation where emotions are high and people have a lot of anxiety in trying to determine how severe an injury might be. So having some examples can be helpful. Now, we already talked about that we're making this distinction and PCARN is making a distinction between kids under two and over two. So how is the decision rule for determining a very low risk of intracranial injury and these criteria, are how are they different for the kids who are over the age of two or two and older, I should say? Yeah, so it's two years and older. And luckily, there are a lot of correlates. And, you know, when I'm teaching our trainees about the rule is try to match them up in their heads as well, because I think, you know, it's easier to remember six things than 12 things. So the things that carry over that are exactly the same. So normal mental status is a low risk feature for both the younger kids and the older kids. And the definition of altered mental status is also the same, which is a, a Glasgow coma scale score of less than 15, agitation, somnolence, or slow responses. The other things that we're going to pull over from the younger children are, again, injury mechanism. Similar definitions, except, again, that fall height is raised a little bit, so falls greater than five feet are considered severe in the older kids. We're carrying over a loss of consciousness. The difference with the older children is that it's no loss of consciousness for being low risk. In the younger children, you can have a loss of consciousness of less than five seconds and still be low risk. Any loss of consciousness drops you out of low risk criteria. Then we had, if you'll remember, a palpable skull fracture as a not low risk feature for the younger children. We're gonna carry that over and now signs of a basilar skull fracture is higher risk for the older children. And then there's two new ones. One is vomiting. So no vomiting is low risk vomiting takes you out of low risk, and then having severe headache takes you out of low risk. And similar to the children younger than two, there's a little bit of stratification here. So there are two of these that impart a higher risk. So if you have either abnormal mental status, and that is the same for the younger and older kids, and if you remember for the younger kids, the second higher risk feature was the palpable skull fracture. For the older kids, it's basal or skull fracture. And if either of those are present, we're looking at a risk of around, again, four and a half to 5% of having a clinically important traumatic brain injury. So very similar to the younger group. The other four, if any of them are present, you're looking at a risk of around 1%. So the other thing I think it's telling us who in the emergency department does not need a CAT scan. It's not telling us who needs a CAT scan. So having one of these features present, particularly one of the four that is in the high risk features, doesn't necessarily mean we are automatically getting a CAT scan of a child's brain. The risk is around 1% of having a bleed if you have any of those other features present. It's an exclusionary rule rather than an inclusionary rule, if that makes sense. Right. And I imagine you're taking the whole story and clinical presentation into account when you're determining if they're going to need a CAT scan. Absolutely. So if the low risk criteria 
are not met, as we mentioned, we're likely referring them to the emergency department and there they may be observed or they may get some head imaging. However, if the low-risk criteria are all met, what advice should we give parents in managing and observing these children over the next few hours? Yeah, and I think that setup is perfect because, as you mentioned, I agree with if these low-risk features are not met, it's appropriate to refer them to the emergency department. We'll also have the benefit of time. By the time they get into the emergency department, we're talking about a couple of hours. And that really gives us a sense of how this is evolving. In the original study, in our pathway, we recommend a period of observation of two to four hours for the children who are on the fence about if they need imaging. And often in that time, you get a sense of, are any of the concerning features going to develop? Generally, if we're going to see concerning features, they are going to develop in the first few hours, within those first four hours of injury. So if we have a child in primary care clinic or in the emergency department who meets all the low-risk features and we're sending them home, the things that we tell parents to watch out for are the features that we would consider developing into higher risk. So thinking back to our decision rule for either the older or the younger children, if they develop an abnormal mental status, so they are difficult to arouse, they are somnolent, particularly for the older kids, if they develop a very severe headache, if they start vomiting repetitively. For the younger kids, acting normally for the parents is one of the features of low risk. So that's a real key that I will guide parents on. Your child has behavior that is quite unusual beyond what you'd expect them to do for that time of day. And the that time of day part is also important because we get a lot of parents keeping children awake, observing them to determine if we are going to see any features develop. Once you're past that two to four hour mark, a child is allowed to sleep. Um, they should be allowed to sleep. And if we keep them awake, they have the potential to develop other symptoms the next day in terms of a lack of sleep symptoms. So certainly in that two to four hour observation window, it's important to get a good look. And if you're worried to have them evaluated, but if none of those signs or symptoms have developed over four hours and you've seen them in the clinic and are sending them home, you can feel confident to tell the parent that they can have their child rest. I love that point because there is sort of an old adage that you should not let a child sleep after a head injury. And I've seen a lot of parents who have kept their child awake or they wake them every few hours overnight. And so what you're saying is really after the first two to four hours, we can feel comfortable that if their mental status is normal and they've been doing well and acting like themselves, that it's okay to let them sleep overnight after that four hour period. Absolutely. And I think we're going to talk about concussion in a little bit, but as we transition from more severe head trauma to minor traumatic brain injury, mild traumatic brain injury or concussion, one of the things we know that's going to influence recovery is a lack of sleep. So there's a potential if you're, as you're saying, waking a child up every two hours to check on their mental status, that we're causing some harm down the line in terms of their recovery from a concussion if they do have one. Well, I know from having an infant in the past that waking up every two hours is not good for my mental status. So I can assure <laughs> you that it's not good for our kids either. Now, you touched on concussion. So in kids over the age of five, an acute head injury may lead to a concussion. So when we're seeing these kids initially in that acute period, what are some of the initial signs that we should look out for and recognize as signs of concussion? Yeah, and we have updated our chat pathway. So for those who, again, are looking live at the chat pathway, which I think has some wonderful information on it, in addition to guidance about neuroimaging and severe traumatic brain injury, we do have guidance about concussion as well. So some of the points we'll talk about are present on there. 
In terms of signs and symptoms, we usually think of concussion symptoms in four different buckets. There are the physical symptoms that um, I'll come back to in just a moment, but they're the more common ones that I think people think about. There are cognitive symptoms, so that's things like feeling foggy, difficulty concentrating, difficulty remembering, feeling mentally slowed down. There are sleep symptoms, so children have difficulty falling asleep, difficulty staying asleep, or just sleeping more than usual. The least thought of, but probably the most impactful for children are the emotional symptoms that are associated with concussion. These tend to develop a little bit later, but we're looking at things like emotional lability, irritability, nervousness, depression. These all can either be present upon concussion or exacerbated in children with underlying mental health issues. And then I mentioned we'd come back to the physical symptoms. Traditionally, they're bucketed together. We have separated them out a little bit in our brains to what we call somatic symptoms, which would be a headache, light sensitivity, noise sensitivity, and then symptoms of dysfunction of the visio-vestibular system, which I know we'll talk about in a little bit. But that is vision problems, feeling off balance, or feeling nauseous. And those can all be signs that there are issues underlying with the visio-vestibular system. So in assessing for concussion, you want to be as comprehensive as possible in running through those symptom lists because every concussion is unique. There's no one-size-fits-all concussion. And each concussion in each child is going to present just a little bit differently. So what are some of the components of that visio-vestibular exam in children that maybe we would want to include when we're doing our initial head trauma physical exam? Yeah, and we really love this exam, and we recommend that anyone after head trauma who you're evaluating for concussion have one performed. It takes four to five minutes to perform, so we're not talking about a huge chunk of time, but can give you a lot of really valuable information. Located within the head trauma pathway, there's a link right on the front page of Perform Visio Vestibular Exam. That lists step-by-step how to perform the exam and also includes a link to a video demonstration of the exam being performed on one of our nurses by me. So the components of the exam and just a little bit of natural history of the exam, it was created at the University of Pittsburgh by some wonderful concussion researchers there. And our concussion specialists here at Chalk, led by Tina Master and Matt Grady, adapted the exam based on their own clinical experience, added a few parts, took away a couple of parts to create what we call our current visio-vestibular exam. There are nine features to it. And as I said, you get a lot of information from just the four or five minutes it takes to perform the exam. The first element is smooth pursuit. So you're watching a patient move their eyes in a single plane, in this case, a horizontal plane for five repetitions back and forth. For a lot of these, we're seeing if symptoms are provoked when we do these maneuvers. And I would correlate it to a child who comes in after twisting their ankle and they're sitting in a wheelchair. And to figure out if they've sprained it, you're not just asking them if it hurts sitting in the wheelchair, but you're having them stand up and walk or you're having them flex or extend or invert their ankle to get a full sense of what's going on with that ankle. Very similar to the brain. This is sort of the walking of the brain that is a little bit more stressed to see if we're able to provoke symptoms. So we're seeing if symptoms are provoked with these smooth pursuits. We're also observing to see if we see jerky or jumpy eye movements as the eyes are moving around. The next two are fast saccades, which is eyes moving back and forth between a fixed object, either in the horizontal plane. So you hold your fingers shoulder width apart. Now the subject rapidly look back and forth between the fingers or up and down. So forehead to chin distance and have them look rapidly between your two fingers. We do gaze stability where 
you're having them fix their eyes on an object, your thumb, and move their head, shaking it no or yes, to see if that provokes symptoms. We have a couple of tests of vision, accommodation and convergence, which assesses the ability of the subject to focus on something as it gets closer and closer to their face. And then finally, we do a test of balance, which is our complex tandem gait, which is having them walk forward and backwards with their eyes open and closed for five steps each. I mentioned you get a lot of information from this exam in just the four or five minutes it takes to perform. So the first is diagnostically. We've found that in some children who are minimally symptomatic from concussion, so a child hits their head, they maybe have a little headache, but you're really just not sure. They have a lot of deficits on this exam. It is likely they are concussed with the alternative of if this exam is totally normal, we're looking at a little less likelihood of a concussion. So it can help make your diagnosis a little bit more accurate either way. In terms of predicting who's going to take a long time to recover, we in the emergency department really struggle when we see kids a few hours after injury and in trying to figure out who's going to be better in a few weeks and who will fall into the about 30% of children who will take at least a month to recover. This exam has really strong prognostic strength when performed early after the injury. A lot of abnormalities is suggestive that you will have a longer recovery time. And then the last piece is it's functional. So all the things I listed, we all do hundreds of times a day. Children in school do these thousands of times a day. Every time you look back and forth, you're reading. Every time you're looking at a board up and down to take notes, you're doing fast vertical saccades. When you're trying to read small print in school, you're doing binocular convergence, near point of convergence. So if a child is really struggling with one or more of these maneuvers, you're able to tailor the anticipatory guidance they need of getting back in school to what they specifically need individually. So it lets you get a lot more individual and precise with some anticipatory guidance for the child in front of you. Love it. Thank you for that review. And I'll say I have looked at the video and it is really helpful to watch somebody do this exam. And certainly that's hard to do in a podcast medium. So I do recommend that people watch a video of this exam until you sort of internalize those steps. And then, as you said, once you've learned it, it is a really easy exam. And in my experience, kids actually have fun doing it. And so they don't mind doing these little tests. And you, like you said, you get a lot of information from it. Now, there are some newer guidelines about the management of children post-concussion. You kind of hinted at this a little bit. So as we're seeing, again, kids who have had a head injury and we're giving them guidelines about what's going to happen next, what should we know that's sort of maybe new to some of us? Yeah, and when I talk to families about concussion guidance, I describe a pendulum that we've swung in very, very extreme directions over the last few decades. And Mm -hmm. 30-ish years ago, when I was growing up, It was kind of you get hit in the head, you suck it up, and you go back into play. That was the pendulum 180 degrees one way. And then about 20 years ago, we started as medical providers getting really worried that we were causing long-term brain damage in children. We were just learning about things like chronic traumatic encephalopathy and then foul players. There was a question of could this happen to children? So we began resting the heck out of these poor kids, and we called the dark ages of concussion management Mm -hmm. because it was sit in a dark room. Mm -hmm. So we took that pendulum 180 degrees the other way and told kids until they were 100% better and their symptoms were 100% clear, no screens, no reading, no schoolwork, no sports, no friends, no school, basically all the validating things that exist if you are an adolescent, we took away. And when we started rigorously studying this, and the first study of cognitive rest was published back in 2015, we found that prolonged rest was not only not helpful in recovering from concussion, it actually was harmful. 
I think that's rather intuitive that you start getting deconditioned, not just physically when you're in these settings, but cognitively, emotionally, socially. And unfortunately, we've seen as an effect of COVID the downsides of children being away from school for extended periods of time. So where we've landed is somewhere in the middle of rest for a couple of days and then gradually reintroducing activities. As all of this was happening, some of our colleagues up at Buffalo, who have spent a long time looking at exercise intolerance and concussed athletes at the beginning of their research, found that introducing exercise was not only not harmful in concussion, but was actually helpful. And my colleague, Tina Master, who runs our sports medicine concussion program, along with Matt Grady, likes to say that sports medicine doctors think that exercise is treatment for everything. But in this case, we actually have some empiric evidence that exercise is beneficial. So there have been a couple of randomized trials. The most recently published one was last year and was a multi-center trial out of Boston, Buffalo, and CHOP. And it looked at an exercise program in concussed adolescents compared to those who received a stretching program. And the group that was randomized to the exercise program got better faster. And when we looked at a month following injury, the rates of Persistent symptoms were around 30% in the group that was stretching, and that's in line with other studies that show that about 30% of kids will still be symptomatic at a month, but the exercise group that dropped to 20%. And that difference, that 33% difference is huge when we think about the millions and millions of concussions we see each year. And that is just by doing a 30-minute exercise program a day. So translating that to our practice settings, where I am in the emergency department, where you are in primary care, we're not going to be prescribing a, a rigid aerobic exercise program just yet from our settings, but we can tell kids that we know early exercise is beneficial. We don't want them doing so much activity that their symptoms are getting significantly worse, but for 30, 40 minutes a day, getting up, moving around, getting the blood flowing to the brain for multiple reasons can help expedite recovery. So it's one of the things that we're really strongly recommending. And then the other piece, as we mentioned, is trying to avoid prolonged removal from school. So using some of the deficits you might elicit from that visio vestibular exam to be able to guide some accommodation to get kids back into school. But we really want our kids in school within the first few days after about 24 to 48 hours of the injury, even if it's just to sit and listen. We found that that stimulation can in and of itself be re rehabilitation for the recovering brain. That's great because that's something we as primary care providers can do to help work with our patients and their parents to determine what school accommodations their child might need. And then we can check in with them as they're recovering to adapt those accommodations, hopefully to be less and less as they return back to normal. And talking about that return to normal, we typically expect children with non-severe head injuries to recover quickly and without any lasting deficits. So when you're discharging patients from the ED, what advice do you give them about when to follow up with us in primary care or you know, when to worry that things aren't going as they would be predicted to? Yeah, and this is another pivot that we've made over the last few years that I've really been impressing upon my emergency department colleagues in terms of the anticipatory guidance we give in our partnership with primary care providers for head injury patients when they're discharged. And traditionally, it was a kind of one-size-fits-all where we give a ramp-up of activity and symptoms that was a little prescriptive to children, but also with the guidance of, we don't want you doing too much until you see your primary care provider. And that had the potential to lead to these prolonged removals from activity where children were out for two, three weeks before they were able to see their primary care provider. And at that time, we've missed 
perhaps the important window of rehabilitation of the first couple of weeks. So what I've been introducing to our emergency department providers is the idea that there's a group of children that can re-enter into school with some of the accommodations we talked about before they have that first follow-up visit. And if they're doing okay, they should certainly be looping in their primary care provider. They're going to need clearance from their primary care provider to get fully back into activity, especially for athletes. But they don't necessarily need that two to three day visit if they're ramping up activity okay. The ones who are really struggling with symptom burden over the first few days, who are going into school and feeling like they're going backwards, so symptoms are getting better, they reintroduce school activity and the symptoms are getting worse, that we would want to be seen a little bit more promptly. And the reason is when we look at some of these um, therapies, these real rehabilitation therapies that are beginning to be prescribed from the specialty realm of concussion care, if they're implemented earlier within the first couple of weeks of injury, they tend to be more impactful. So if you're seeing from the primary care setting that a child, even just a week out, is still really struggling with symptoms, has a huge burden of vestibular deficits, those are children we'd think about referring to a concussion specialist a little earlier. Compared to, as you're mentioning, for most children, while it may take two to three weeks, they have a, a pretty linear recovery. There may be some blips in the road, but they're getting better and they don't need a ton of specialized care. That's the 70% that are better within two to three weeks. It's that 30% that we have trouble figuring out within the first two days of injury that we really want to get some close follow-up, some close guidance from you guys in the primary care world and potentially some earlier referrals to the concussion specialists who may be implementing those advanced rehabilitation strategies we mentioned. Great. Thank you for pointing all of that out, how we can partner together. And that's really when we can provide the best care to patients is when we have that seamless transition. So for those who aren't part of the CHOP network, we encourage you to partner too with your local emergency departments so that you can get patients, as you mentioned, back to school and their activities as soon as is safely possible. So thank you so much for talking to us today about acute head injuries. And as we mentioned many times, CHOP has a clinical pathway for the evaluation and management of children with acute head trauma. You can find that on the CHOP clinical pathway site, and we'll link it on our site as well. And we encourage everyone to go look around there, um, get familiar with it. And thank you so much for walking us through it and teaching us today, Dr. Corwin. You've been really fantastic. It was my pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you for listening to this episode of Primary Care Perspectives. You can download and subscribe to future episodes on iTunes or visit chop.edu slash PCP podcast for a listing of all episodes. I look forward to our next chat.